and welcome to episode 25 of Flowering of the Human Spirit. How are you? It's Tuesday here in Edinburgh and the weather is just not brilliant this week. It's starting to feel a little bit nippy and cold, like autumn is coming in and uh, definitely noticeably darker in the evenings, which is always a you know, a topic of consternation for people in Scotland. Uh, if you're somewhere else where still having light evenings, then appreciate those as long as you possibly can. Because when the nights start drawing in, or, you know, then everybody's everybody's uh, mood is, is affected. Whether we realise it or not, we've also had a lot of terrible uh, high atmospheric pressure, which tends to make me feel like my head is in a vice so that's been nice and then it's broken occasionally by a nice shower of rain and so I'm grateful for the rain at the moment when it happens because I I can't really deal with hardly deal with high pressure high atmospheric pressure Uh, just don't know why it is but I seem to be sensitive to it but this time of year in, in August, before we're always having a changeable time of it. And uh, when you think about festival years, you know, you think about there's particular there's particular smells and sensations that are associated with the uh, with the with the August weather in Edinburgh. Like the sort of slightly you know, uh, different smells that you get in when inside gigantic tent venues when it's wet you know there's always a there's a slight damp tent distinctive smell that you get but there's also a hot tent distinctive smell when the when the sun's really beating down on that on that canvas and uh, yeah I'm just missing those missing those things still all those little experiences I'll tell you what I'm not missing though, uh, which uh, is tied into the episode I did the other day, thinking about FOMO, thinking about mental health, self-care, burnout, all those things, is the the feeling, not having the feeling of being absolutely zonked and so tired and just trying to keep on anyway, because whether or not I can cope with the things that I'm committed to doing or want to do. Um, I, you know, they're they're gonna happen. They're gonna happen regardless, and I'm gonna be pulled along by their magnetic power. Uh, today I wanted to share some interesting uh, bits of um, bits of commentary that I found that I, that I thought were interesting, uh, especially. Uh, in light of uh, the you know the the speculation that's been going on about this year's festivals and what it means and and how this is an opportunity for change and and so on and last year I was writing a book and I'm not going to talk about that too much but uh, part of um, part of the the book was set in Edinburgh and part of my fascination with Edinburgh during uh, the latter part of the 19th century when the book is set came from the fact of realising that very little had actually changed since then in Edinburgh 
and that might sound crazy to some people. Of course, there have been technological advances and, you know, society has moved on in many ways, but there's also a lot of things that really just haven't changed at all. Uh, if you want to know more about it, I guess you'll just have to wait for my book to come out. It's not coming out anytime soon, haha, but we'll just wait and see how that comes on. But anyway, when I was... Um, when I was researching that book and there are certain writers who I had followed for many years before that and one of them was Margaret Oliphant who was also known publicly as Mrs Oliphant and I found an article uh, which I actually uh, I actually bought bought this article from someone on eBay that's how much of a geek I am about uh, Victoria Edinburgh there's not that many of us around but we know who each other are mostly you know, um, but yeah, the the uber the uber geeky of uh, you know Edinburgh Victoriana uh, obsessives, and I found this article and I actually bought it, so I have a hard copy of it uh, stashed away somewhere by Mrs. Oliphant. And the gist of this article, which was written in 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 the year eighteen ninety, uh, in a, in a magazine, a periodical magazine, was. Um, writing about developments, building developments in Edinburgh being horribly modern, anachronistic, and out of um, out of keeping with the surroundings, and disrespectful to the historic surroundings of Edinburgh and the you know Edinburgh people's preoccupation with complaining about it and. In 1890, Margaret Oliphant, Mrs. Oliphant, as she was titled in this article, um, was writing, you know, saying, it was ever thus that people in Edinburgh complain about new and different things being built in the city and say that they are not, you know, architectural eyesores. Problems with planning difficulties um, arising from people's belief that things don't fit or that you know progress is happening too quickly and I mean that's a simplification if, if anyone's listening and they're interested in what the article actually says please do contact me and I'll seek it out and you know take a scan of it and you can read the whole thing if you like um, because it's very much out of copyright by now having been written 130 years ago um, so yeah so I mean you know that I get like at, at the point where I discovered this article uh, and it was it was very amusing to me because that is of course still true today anybody who lives in Edinburgh knows that the preoccupations of of um, of people in Edinburgh these days are similar there's a lot of um, ill feeling towards some of the new building developments happening in Edinburgh uh, that's not to say that we sh- that should discount or undermine legitimate criticism of some of these developments. Um, I feel like I could probably do an entire podcast series every day for a year about some of the ins and outs of these developments and and what's what's going on with them and and all the different people involved but I'm, I'm, I'm not going to do that I'll leave that up to somebody more interesting like Andy Whiteman he could do a podcast series about about something like that 
um, covering the whole of Scotland though, because you know he's uh, he's looking out for us all, uh, all over the country, and protecting us from from land uh, land grabs and, and unfair unfair uh, treatment uh, in in respect of land rights. Anyway, this uh, so this whole article by the time I you know by the time I was reading it, I, I already did have in mind and had set off down this path of you know discovering how much we haven't really changed in Scotland in Edinburgh in in many respects um, in the last 130 40 50 years and uh, and the landscape and society and culture uh, and so when I read this uh, I mean I had to you know it was it was it was funny to discover it also uh, by the way I uh, I I um I'd actually bought it I I'd actually bought it because of the the writer and the date of the publication rather than the subject matter and so it was almost an accident that I happened to end up in possession of it yeah, and that's that's another story but the article you know talking about uh, at the time they were talking about a similar like a, a project to try to modernise the area around uh, the Cannon Gate. And that is something that had been in progress uh, last year. I mean, who knows what is going on with it now, but all the, all the Cannon Gate, all the down the, the back of the Cannon Gate stuff, uh, the developments of the buildings and flats and so on, and... Um, the, the, the converting of, of that area into, you know, student accommodation and also, like, so-called affordable housing and uh, hotels, developments there. I mean, that, so that, that's from, that's from 1890. So I, I'm already, you know, well primed for uh, the, the idea that when it comes to Edinburgh's grumbles, and the things that get complained about and the things that people care about in Edinburgh, there's nothing really new under the sun. And I, yeah, I don't see that as being a delegitimizing thing. And I think perhaps it's it's like, you know, when I'm trying to sort of understand what the culture of Edinburgh as a city is like, uh, it's really relevant to the, the, the civic culture of Edinburgh uh, perhaps over the course of, of time is that Edinburgh's civic culture perhaps rests very much on this idea this identity of citizens as being grumblers ineffectual grumblers who they, they, they have their opinions but n- nobody really listens to them and takes them seriously and they sort of find their, find their concerns framed as grumbles <laughs> on frequent occasions and you know so that's that's another side to it if it's been the case that sort of leading leading commentators social commentators since um victorian times have been saying oh these edinburgh people they're always grumbling about that though i mean you can't really pay too much attention to it because they 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 are just complaining about it uh, it's very you know, it's a very disempowering thing to be on the other side of, and 
that I say, and that's coming from me. I'm not even. I don't even really identify that much with with that um, idea because I've moved here. I'm I'm still uh, an Arab East when I've you know I've been here for ten years, but. You, know, you have to live in Edinburgh for quite a long time before you're really accepted and maybe that's another subject for another podcast on another day um, but that's just again part of the character of the place and it's not something something plenty of Edinburgh people have have uh, explained to me and I understand it now especially when I see things like data being published by the council saying that the largest uh, factor in population change is uh, immigration, is net migration rather than births and deaths. You know, Edinburgh people are literally outnumbered when it comes to um, the, you know, the flux in in the in population. For every baby that gets born and every person that dies there's, you know, something like five people moving here. (laughs) Anyway, this article that I come across was it was tweeted by uh, somebody called Peter Brown Pete, uh, at Peter Brown Barra, as in the Isle of Barra on Twitter, and he tweeted it at the Place Edinburgh account, which I've been following with interest uh, and since I've come across them recently. And uh, he said that this article is from the Scots magazine circa 1970. Now, I really hope the Scots magazine are not going to mind if I read out a few bits of this article from circa 1970, because uh, I, I can't pinpoint the exact date of the article, and I do hope that they are not going to be unhappy about it, um, or, or feel that I've uh, overstepped the mark by sharing this content. I do uh, love the Scots magazine, I'm a big fan and especially the old issues of the Scots magazine. I if if you ever come if you know me, if you ever come across any particularly juicy uh, editions of the Scots magazine in the, in the secondhand bookshop or under your granny's couch or or whatever, please do keep them for me because I I do love them. True story. So this is a this was uh, photographed in a in a Scots magazine circa 1970 an article entitled Tourism, Time to Call It a Halt? Question mark. And uh, it's it's obviously an opinion column by I.A.N. Anderson. I.A.N. Anderson. Uh, this opinion column was, was titled As I See It. So this is one of his editions of his opinion column. Uh, and I'll, I'll just I'll just read you some some choice excerpts from that. It's about Scotland as a whole, not just Edinburgh, but um, yeah. So I A N Aunt Henderson, uh, writing in the Scots Magazine, circa nineteen seventy. Uh, that says, as Scotland approaches the peak of another tourist season, our contributor expresses some grave misgivings. That's the subheading. Nothing is destroying our native culture so quickly as tourism. It is a menial trade which makes lackeys of us and reduces our way of life to the level of a music hall act. Well, a strong opening there by uh, by Henderson. He's not pulling any punches. Um... 
he goes on, as I see it, tourism is a trade that brings very limited benefit to Scotland and a lot of positive harm. The effort to attract more and more tourists to Scotland every year uh, would be better directed at helping us develop more positive sources of income. The provision of food, transport and hospitality to strangers is one of our oldest Scottish traditions. To do so for money is a new and undignified departure and we have gone too far. I'm just going to pause there in the article just to let you let that sink in, right? Um, that this in 1970 uh, providing hospitality for money in Scotland was con- considered a new and undignified departure. Actually, horrifies me as well to think that 1970 was only f- was 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 as many as 50 years ago. Because, uh, yeah, just just a just a bit of a terrifying idea. Um, so yeah, so he goes on to say the tourist has ousted the grouse and the stag as fair game in Scotland. When the tourist season opens with the ceremonial unveiling of the bed and breakfast signs and the ritual opening of souvenir shops, the annual slaughter starts. Tourists are carted to the tourist areas and unloosed. Oh God, strong stuff here from 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 EIAN Henderson. Uh, tourists are carted to the tourist areas and unloosed and then the tour operators, hotel workers, B&B purveyors and arty crafty folk who make pebble jewellery move in for the kill. It is an unsavoury business. Uh, yeah, so I mean he's obviously, he's got some quite strong opinions here. The tourist buys, he goes on to say now this bit like rings a bell because it feel, it, this feels like very much a, an ongoing chat that's just, I don't know. It's, it's, it's going nowhere, is it? And it's probably going nowhere because yes, there's a there's a point, right? There's a there's a point to this um, argument. It's a good point. The tourist buys Piper dolls. Uh, now I have to say I do love a bit of Scottish keech. Just gonna gonna add that in there. I do collect it actually. Uh, so Piper dolls from the 1970s are delightful to me but yes the other the other things the other things are uh, are not horn handled corkscrews and tinned tartan knickers in scotland so that's the tourist buys these things and they do it because scotland sells these things where we used to have craftsmen producing a few good quality items we now have mass production i know one or two men who make beautiful hand carved horn handles and fit them to good straight walking sticks so do I actually, and, and they still do a, a, a fairly good trade. Uh, but most of the horn handle sticks you see in souvenir shops are rubbish, hacked out in a standard pattern and unfinished. Anything is good enough for the tourist if it sells. And the fact that a lot of the trash is imported into Scotland to be sold merely compounds the crime. The next section is titled Commercial Greed. And uh, the first line promoting tourism we are effectively selling our owner all that makes for a national character is at risk when commercial greed tries to capitalize on it okay so yeah scotland is being changed and ruined he says massive hotels are being developed with foreign staff recruited to run them 
this is I think you know like I've departed very much from from uh, his view on tourism from from the beginning of the article but it's just interesting to see that this is just you know uh, you know first of all is it, it's not acceptable um, to say anymore that that uh, you know that that foreign staff are wrong because we rely on you know inverted commas foreign staff uh, people coming to Scotland to, to work uh, a whole variety of industries that we just don't have enough people with skills uh, to run to keep them going without without uh, immigrants so anyway but the, yeah I mean he basically goes on to say you know complain about sort of pseudo tartan pseudo Scottish eating places that he's been to and how they got the dishes wrong and you know just the, the food being rubbish and blah blah, blah. but anyway and, uh, and and the end of the article is not even there on the on the part that's screenshotted that I've got but anyway yeah uh, yeah you know there you go there's there's um the what what you might call the extreme the ex- the, the extreme side of the of, of, of the argument and not a particularly logical uh, one but one that you know uh, it's interesting to see that you know of course we've, we've, we've been complaining uh, about tourism in Edinburgh for quite some time, but as only as recently as 1970, there were people who were, I guess, actively seeing it as something that undermined our national character. And, and uh, I mean, it's quite, you know, I suppose we'd see it in this globalised 21st century, um, we'd see it as, as a really parochial, slightly sort of superstitious view, wouldn't we? That, um, you know, we're, we're, we're making ourselves subservient. Uh, I, I I almost I I can't I couldn't even really follow there there was no logic let's face it there was no logic because we are making ourselves subservient but we're also slaughtering the uh, you know hypothetical beast of the tourist by uh, selling them selling them pebble jewelry <laughs> anyway I just thought you might enjoy that uh, interlude there uh, but we have there there's so there's other um other sources I come across of commentary though about tourism that were I found quite interesting. I found a review of the Fringe in, in 1982. Uh, the Edinburgh Fringe reviewed by the feminist publication Spare Rib um, and that has been yet yeah, archived online on, on a website called Stand Up on Spit, Stand Up and Spit, sorry, Stand Up and Spit.wordpress.com. Um, they have, yeah, excerpted a review from 1982. It turns out that in 1982, uh, sexual politics was the hot topic of the, of the fringe. And it was actually being, yeah, written about by several other theatre critics as well, including Joyce McMillan, uh, our own Joyce McMillan of the Scotsman uh, theatre critic and also uh, Christina Jacqueline Johns who was writing about it in the Scottish Theatre News that year about the Fringe and the Edinburgh Festival Fringe productions which were either by or about women or which explicitly concerned themselves with sexual politics uh, and you know she noted uh, Brian Lavery and Liz Lockhead as being interesting interesting plays that year but spare rib i thought it was uh, interesting that they had to say what they had to say about it so i'll read this excerpt the edinburgh festival the edinburgh fringe is a festival for pirates 
The other official festival started in 1946. It invites 20 international companies to present the cream of establishment theatre, opera, ballet in the city's more distinguished theatre every August and September. Interesting, it was September as well in those days. The Fringe comes to make trouble. This year, over 800 different shows burst out of pubs, church halls and broom cupboards to fill the streets with punk clowns, futuristic acrobats and avant-garde actors. So who were the major forces of the 1982 Fringe? Well, I waded through male cabarets of recycled Monty Python sketches and the egocentric writings of several young male playwrights who thought that writing about women would be a good idea this year. They usually started by telling us what it's like to be a woman and progressed into a dramatisation of the particular playwright's female fantasies. So I then tackled the women's companies where, where I could get a ticket, for they were the sellout of the fringe. Why? Without precedence, women's theatre is bound to be original. It explores new material for theatre, such as the personal experiences of childbearing or of lesbian relationships, and it searches out different styles of theatrical expression. And to this, the sense of commitment inherent in women's theatre, and no, sorry, add to this the sense of commitment inherent in women's theatre, and you have the reason why this can be the most powerful stuff on stage. Let's hope that the female talents who exhilarated Edinburgh this year will be as firmly embedded in British culture in 10 years' time as their male predecessors. And that was written by Charlotte Keatley in the um, October 1982 edition of Spare Rib. Uh, So I I just wanted to share that with you as well, a bit of past commentary about the Fringe. And and yet it's funny that... um, you know, in 1982, that was that does seem to be a, a, a noticeable trend uh, in looking at the festival. But it's also interesting to see it described that way. And and actually, uh, a, a, another set of commentary and reminiscences that I'm not going to share was a friend who was reminiscing with friends on Facebook who had been at the in the, you know involved in the festivals in the 70s, talking about some of their experiences and uh, yeah I just I feel like you know we could probably we could probably make more of uh, making public some of the rich and interesting history behind the festivals there's there's really so much to it and actually when I try to I try to dig down into some uh, older material from archives and found that I wouldn't be able to access it without an academic account uh, because it's all in universities, collections and archives and and even the stuff that's accessible I'm going to have to, I would have to email somebody and potentially travel somewhere to look at it and you know it wouldn't be like a difficult thing to digitise it and perhaps an idea for this year as well if people want to you know like try to get back to the roots of the festivals and what they were really all about and what they were for then could be a really good place to start and not you know not in academic institutions because quite frankly you know unless you're an academic who's studying the festivals or fringe or or festival culture then you're not going to be looking at it so your your archives will be accessed by about 10 people a year uh, whereas put them out there for the public and maybe you'd win back 
uh, a few hearts from from the the critical side of the fence. Anyway, there's so there are so many interesting bits and bobs of commentary about the festivals. I've got more uh, similar stuff coming up in tomorrow's episode, and I will be back tomorrow with another episode. Um, until then, please take care and obviously get in touch if you have anything you'd like to say and bear in mind that we've only got six days left of of this podcast left you know so um we're nearly at the end guys oh my goodness so I i can't believe that i'm now on episode 25 i also can't believe that 100 people listened to the podcast in like the last 24 hours or something uh just completely bananas and i'm uh, I'm very pleased with that those levels of listeners. I also was absolutely astonished to realise when I f- finally had some data on some of the podcast analytics that some of my listeners are in other places: the Netherlands, Ireland, Norway, Canada, Germany, and a significant portion in the United States. And uh, so yeah that was like a, a surprise of the nicest variety because turns out that we're actually on an international we're on an international journey together guys we're on an international journey so thanks for being there um until tomorrow please take care and i'll see you then cheerio